My name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects podcast. Hello, and welcome to History of the Mormon Church in 50 Objects, Episode 13, Tar and Feathers. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the University of Queensland, Australia is home to the longest-running laboratory experiment in the world. Almost 100 years ago, the university's first professor of physics kicked off an experiment to show his students some of the surprising properties of tar. In short, he wanted to show his students that, though pine tar hardened, it was still a liquid in most senses of the word. So he created a funnel that's been kept at room temperature so that drops will form and eventually fall. Since the experiment started, nine drops have fallen in that time. The last drop fell in 2014, with the next drop expected to fall sometime around 2020. This experiment on tar could outlast the university itself. Now, rewinding the clock just a bit here, in 1189, Richard the Lionheart was the new king of England, And he was also interested in tar, but for different reasons. Richard the Lionheart had a problem. While planning the Third Crusade to retake Jerusalem, Richard needed to figure out what was to be done with thieves on board his ships. These were Christian soldiers, and they shouldn't be stealing from each other while on a mission to retake the Holy Land. This would mark the first documented case of someone being tarred and feathered. Richard the Lionheart wrote, He, or the thief, shall be shaved, then boiling pitch shall be poured upon his head, and a cushion of feathers shook over it so that he may be publicly known. And at the first land where the ships put in, he shall be cast on shore. What a terribly perfect message to send. The punishment was just as painful as it was embarrassing. Although Richard the Lionheart's third crusade was ultimately a failure, this new form of punishment would prove to catch on and stand at the test of time. For the next 800 years, we have accounts of this type of punishment being doled out to everyone from soldiers and peasants who'd committed basic crimes, to friars and nuns in Madrid for being found drunken. This practice has even lasted all the way to our present day. In fact, in 2007, a Belfast man was tarred and feathered by his community for dealing out drugs. However, in no area of the world did this become quite so prevalent as it did in colonial America. Up to and throughout the Revolutionary War, this practice became the favorite form of punishment by American mobs and militias to dish out to British loyalists and officials. After the enactment of the Stamp Act in 1765, it was common for Americans to threaten to attack British government employees in the colonies. No Stamp Act commissioner or tax collector was actually tarred and feathered, but by November 1st of that year, the day the Stamp Act went into effect, There were no stamp commissioners left in the colonies to collect it. Tarring and feathering carried quite a frightening reputation. This reputation carried all the way to British Parliament, where when debating American colonial duties, one member argued that, quote, Americans were a strange set of people, and that it was vain to expect any degree of reasoning from them, that instead of making their claims by argument, they always chose to decide the matter by tarring and feathering, end quote. Now, fearing this practice was getting out of hand, Bostonians would eventually outlaw tarring and feathering. 
but it will still be a favorite mode of punishment on the western frontier. Today's object is tar and feather. When we think of tar, we tend to think of the black, sticky tar used for roofing and roads. This isn't the tar used throughout American history. In the past, it was typically done with pine tar, which came from trees, obviously, or pitch, which came from resin. Wood tar was generally used for waterproofing boats, wagons, or homes, and was really easy to access for early Americans. Tar actually became a booming industry in early America, and it is the reason North Carolinians are called the Tar Hills, because of the tar-rich pine forests. So how did tar and feathering actually work? Though tar and feathering typically wasn't fatal, it was extremely painful. Applying the burning hot tar to bare skin usually caused very painful blistering. To remove it after it cooled, the tar had to be reheated and then scraped off the skin, at times pulling off chunks of skin with it, which could make the whole process far worse. The adding of feathers, which would stick to the tar, made the victim a comical figure. So, back to Joseph Smith in 1832. The Mormon church was having a lot of success. In just under two years, they now had over 2,600 members. New converts were relocating all the time to Kirtland to be near the Prophet, or Independence, Missouri, to be where Zion was going to be built. Aside from some legal issues, things are going very well for the young Mormon church. However, in Joseph Smith's personal life, things were very difficult. After leaving Pennsylvania, he and Emma didn't have a home to live in, and were living with the Morleys. Although Isaac Morley was building Joseph a home to live on on his farm, it was distracting. Converts and curious neighbors were showing up daily to meet the prophet. Joseph and Emma wanted children, and after getting married in 1827, Emma delivered their first baby Alvin in 1828. However, Alvin was born with birth defects and died right after birth. Now on the Morley farm, Emma is pregnant again with twins. This happiness wouldn't last, though, as both children are born prematurely and die hours after being born. I can't imagine the toll this would have had on Joseph, and especially upon Emma. Now at this time, a local family of new converts, the Murdochs, had also delivered twin babies. As fate would have it, the mother, Julia Murdoch, died during childbirth, and so Joseph and Emma adopted the twin babies as their own to help with their loss and their desire to start a family. John Murdoch felt the draw to be a missionary, and he was off to preach the gospel. So with the new babies, Joseph Smith felt he needed some space from all the distractions, so he and Sidney Rigdon with their families decided to move to Hiram, Ohio. Joseph and Emma and the kids were moving into the home of converts John and Elsa Johnson. John and Elsa had become converted to the church when they, with some of their friends, went to meet Joseph in Kirtland. The story goes that Elsa had suffered terribly in her arm from some form of rheumatoid that made it so that she was unable to raise her hand to the level of her face. According to Elsa Johnson, Joseph placed his hands on her head and she was immediately healed. But for as converted as the Johnsons were with the Mormon church, the church had some apostates who were starting to cause some real problems. The head of the Hiram militia, his name Simon's Ryder, decided to leave the church. The reasons for leaving vary. Some say it's because of something as simple as a misspelling of his name in a revelation. Other accounts say it's because Joseph called him to serve a mission and he was unwilling. But either way, he and his friend Ezra Booth had become outspoken critics of the church. Ezra Booth began writing a number of articles published that stated Joseph was scheming to steal everyone's land and that he was just a fraud. 
So in March of 1832 in Hiram, Ohio, Ezra and Simon's writer brought these criticisms to a boil as they organized a mob. The actual date was March 24th. Both Joseph and Sidney had been up all night. It appears the children and both families were suffering from the measles. So around 3 a.m., Emma heard some tapping on the window. Apparently the mob wanted to see if anyone was awake, and when nobody responded, the mob broke through the door and grabbed Joseph and drug him out of the home. Joseph fought back, but when they threatened to kill his family, he gave up and was apparently choked until he passed out. When he awoke, he was being carried into the woods. Joseph Smith says that he looked on the ground as they were carrying him and saw the body of Sidney Rigdon. They had pulled him out of his home and drug him by his ankles as his bloodied head banged against the rocks and the snow. Upon seeing him, Joseph assumed that Sidney Rigdon was dead. Joseph Smith then said that upon seeing Sidney Rigdon's body, he told the mob he hoped they'd have mercy on him, and he said they told him he'd get none. They were right. They then set in on the Mormon prophet. Now this was a very violent beating. These men hated Joseph Smith, and it should be noted that they weren't common thugs. By most accounts, these were respectable men. Among the men in the mob, we have a doctor, a minister, and others. These were upstanding men that were angered by Joseph Smith and the Mormons. So after tearing off all of Joseph's clothing, one of them actually set upon Joseph and used his fingernails to rake them down his chest. They ripped out parts of his hair, which would force Joseph to comb his hair differently the rest of his life to cover that bald spot. It's reported that Dr. Richard Dennison was among the mob. He'd brought vials of nitric acid and was planning on administering it to Joseph Smith. As he was attempting to force it into Joseph's mouth, the vial broke against his teeth, burning his face and chest. They attempted to force it so hard that they actually broke one of Joseph's teeth, and he then spoke with a whistle for the rest of his life. After the acid didn't work and with Joseph naked and beaten up, they brought out the hot pine tar, which they then slathered over his body. To finish it off, they broke the feathers on him and left him alone in the dark in the snow. Joseph said he would eventually make it to his feet. He said he saw a light in the distance and tried walking to it. Eventually, he made it home. When Emma saw him enter and viewed his condition, she fainted. So this has become a debated topic. But why did the mob do this to Joseph Smith? Simon's writer, who was head of the militia and head of this mob, seemed to think he was driving a fraud from the county. It would work, too. They would continue to harass Joseph and Sidney until they left, following them all the way to Cincinnati. Stories have since arisen from the non-Mormon groups that this mob attacked Joseph Smith because he'd been in some sort of inappropriate relationship with one of John Johnson's daughters. But most of these details have been disproven, and that wouldn't explain why they also drug out and nearly killed Sidney Rigdon. After the attack, Elsa Johnson, Emma Smith, and other members spend the remainder of the night attending to Joseph and Sidney. Sidney will be delirious for days, but they spend the night scraping the tar from Joseph Smith, and when the morning comes, Joseph goes down the street to the South Schoolhouse, where it has been arranged for him to preach. He gives a sermon despite what has just happened to him. Joseph stood there, scarred, injured, and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of the people in the audience were members of that mob, though their family members didn't even know it. Joseph Smith would write in his diary that he gave the sermon and then baptized three new individuals into the Mormon church. So how did this tar and feathering affect Joseph Smith? I think for the first time, 
Joseph considered that he might die doing this work. From here on out, he would have guards with him everywhere he went and would generally stay with a larger group of Mormons. The hardest part for him is not just the personal toll that this would take upon him, but also upon Emma. As Joseph was drugged that night from the home, the cold had affected one of the young Murdoch twins. Joseph Murdoch would then die a few days later. When I read the book of Acts from the New Testament, I often ponder on the struggles of those early apostles. I'm sure from time to time they had to stop and think to themselves, we're teaching the gospel as told by Jesus Christ. Why isn't this easier? Well, for Joseph Smith and the early Mormons, this is just the tip of the iceberg for some of the struggles that they're going to face. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode on history of the Mormon church and 50 objects, tar and feathers. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at Joe, H-O-M-C, history of Mormon church at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening.